Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, May 22nd, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historian John H. Mauer explores the decisive role Franklin D. Roosevelt played in leading the United States to victory in the Second World War. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you to the New York Historical Society for inviting me back again to speak here. I enjoy myself so much when I come here to give a talk. You're such a wonderful audience. Whenever I come here, I get good questions and I can look out. I love this auditorium because I can look out and see faces. And, and if you yawn, <laughs> I'll catch you, okay? Uh, tonight, I'm going to talk about Franklin D. Roosevelt as a war leader. The uh, New York Historical Society is going to have a program about the four freedoms And when we think about the four freedoms, we think about the American domestic scene. Uh, Roosevelt talked about the four freedoms in his State of the Union address in 1941. But Roosevelt understood that freedom in America was related to the international environment, to the world around us. One of the most important questions that we as Americans face is what is that relationship between our freedoms at home and the international environment? A dangerous international environment is one that will have a big impact on our domestic life. Roosevelt understood that. He was a good Wilsonian. He understood that for the United States to have democracy at home, that the United States needed to protect preserve allies who were also the great democracies, that the world had to be made safe for democracies. This story is a frightening one. This is so scary when you think of it, what happened in the Second World War, because the world's democracies were going down one by one in 1939 and 1940. That is frightening to behold. We never want to see that again. And so I'm going to talk tonight about Roosevelt, his views about international politics, and also about strategy. This photograph, by the way, is Roosevelt at a fleet review in New York Harbor in May of 1934. I love this photograph because he's looking at the ship's out there um, beyond him. And look at him. He he looks like a visionary figure looking into that future. And he understood at this time that the international environment was already darkening in 1934 and how important it was for the United States to be stronger if if the United States is to have security in the world, the United States had to have a stronger military force as well. Well, what, how, how, how were leaders made? Well, we could go back and look at childhood experience, uh, upbringing and the rest, but I want to take the story back to the era of the First World War because you cannot understand the Second World War and the leaders of the Second World War without understanding how important the First World War experience was for them. For leaders like Winston Churchill, but also for Franklin D. Roosevelt, who held high executive office during the First World War. This is often forgotten. He served as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy in Woodrow Wilson's administration. That's the second most important civilian, civilian position in the Navy Department. So at this time, when the U.S. is at war with Imperial Germany, when the U.S. is building up its naval power, Franklin D. Roosevelt was involved in that, in the running of the Navy Department. And so this experience is important in shaping his views 
for the later period of the Second World War. Well, here you see the battleship Arizona being launched from the Brooklyn Navy Yard in 1915. Earlier, earlier that year, Franklin D. Roosevelt, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, had been uh, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard for the keel-laying ceremony. Roosevelt was there as these brand-new battleships were being built during this era of the First World War. And, of course, we know what happened to the Arizona at Pearl Harbor. More on that later. Well, here's the Arizona fitted out going down the East River. What a great colorized photograph this is that shows the Arizona with the distinctive American cage masts. That was one thing that marked American battleships was that they had cage masts to help uh, sight guns over the horizon. Well, Roosevelt understood that part of his responsibility is to educate the American people about the importance of naval power for the security of the United States. He wrote to one correspondent that people can be educated. Again, the role of the leader in a democracy is to educate the people. But again, it requires that the administration get together to show what he called the average man in the street, in this case, the necessity of military readiness in this period of danger. Well, in 1918, Franklin D. Roosevelt went to Europe to inspect naval forces that were in Europe. And here he is aboard the battleship Texas, uh, talking with the officers of the battleship. And he also went to the Western Front. He saw firsthand the horrors of the trench warfare of the Western Front in the First World War. You can see him there in his trench coat and some really muddy boots. The First World War, of course, those trenches, when the rains would come down, the water table, mud, the mud of the trenches. Uh, Soldiers were often deep, deep in mud. And so this this photograph here, I think, uh, shows just how difficult the conditions could be on the Western Front for the soldiers. Well, Roosevelt was there, saw that. While in London... In July of 1918, he was asked to give an impromptu speech on this tour to Europe. And what he said to his British hosts were, we are with you to the end. Again, another element of leadership that Roosevelt is learning during the First World War is that for the United States to be successful, it must have partners. It must work with other countries. It must understand the interests of other countries. It should work with other countries because we are more secure when we have partners to work with. The United States, when it fights its wars, fights as a leader of a coalition of other powers. We tend to forget that. We tend to think America's wars, well, it's all about us. Well, Roosevelt understood that when the United States goes to war, it's going to have allies to fight alongside us. Well... In the interwar period, Roosevelt continued to be involved and interested in international affairs. Uh, Here is the journal Foreign Affairs, published by the Council of Foreign Relations right here in New York. And in 1928, the governor-elect of New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt, wrote an article that laid out the Democrats' view on what America's foreign policy should be. And in this article, he's highly critical of the administration, the Republican administration of Calvin Coolidge. He believed that Calvin Coolidge, that president who was known to be really tight-fisted with money, right? Well, uh, Roosevelt criticizes Coolidge for spending too much money on the U.S. Navy. Wait a second. I've been told that Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, was a big Navy man. But here in this article, he's criticizing the Republicans for spending too much. Now, why does he say that? Because Roosevelt thought that in the late 20s, the international environment was relatively benign. There's no real threats on the horizon. Uh, It was said at the time that the United States might go to war with Japan at some point. Well, Roosevelt in this article says, well, nobody really believes that except for excited admirals 
who have overheated imaginations thinking about future wars, only those overexcited admirals will seriously consider the possibility of what? The invasion of the United States or of Japan by sea. Well, as we know, President Roosevelt during the Second World War is going to be overseeing the advance of American forces across the Pacific to invade Japan. And of course, our involvement in the war began with a Japanese assault on Pearl Harbor. This just shows something, right? Even the greatest leaders, sometimes their crystal ball is a little cloudy. That the president who is going to be the commander-in-chief in a war against Japan in 1928 thought, no, relations with Japan have been improved. Both countries are on a good course. They're both going in directions where they're promoting peace, not going to war with each other. Well, one other lesson that you can take from this is that when an astute leader like Franklin Roosevelt can misunderstand how quickly the international environment can change, how dangers can rise up quickly, well, that should all give us pause. And also, we should be a little bit humble sometimes in our projections and thinking about how the world might go and how change can come so rapidly upon us. Well, today, when we think about Franklin D. Roosevelt, the great memorial to him down in Washington, D.C., we, of course, think about the Depression that hit the United States after the great Wall Street crash of 1929 with millions unemployed and this wonderful, wonderful exhibit down at the museum, uh, down at the um, uh, Roosevelt Memorial in Washington captures so well the photographs of the time of desperate, hungry men who've lost faith in the system, uh, uh, who are beaten down, who have no hope. The world has taken such a wrong turn. This is such a huge, the Great Depression, what a huge catastrophe it is. Economic catastrophe, hurting society, blighting lives, the well-being of so many people being hurt by this. Well, as we know, in the 32 election, Roosevelt wins overwhelmingly. And what he brought to the American people was that hope, that hope that things could be better. Uh, I love this photograph. This is, of course, famous, right? We've all seen this photograph. Again, that shows that confidence that people shouldn't be fearful. As he said, we shouldn't fear the things. We've got to look to the future. But it's not just a, a pep talk that he's going to give. It's also the administration is going to take action to try to bring the United States out of the Great Depression. And over the 30s, the economy did improve. And Roosevelt and his administration gets the credit for that upturn that took place in the economy. Part of it, again, is confidence. Confidence that things can be better, to give hope. Here's this 1934 fleet review, the first uh, photo that I had slide up. Here you see uh, President Roosevelt on the cruiser Indianapolis with his wife Eleanor, his mother Sarah, his son James, and his wife. They're on the cruiser Indianapolis. This is May of 34. One of the things that Roosevelt did as part of the National Recovery Act was that government spending would go to promote, um, uh, to reduce unemployment and industry. And so part of the National Recovery Act funding went to the United States Navy to build up the Navy at this time. Roosevelt saw again already that the horizon was darkening. What he had said in 1928 about Japan was no longer true. Japan was on the march in Asia. He knew that the United States Navy had to be stronger. And so he used some of the National Recovery Act funding to help build up U.S. naval power during the 1930s. Well, one person who looked from England at the United States probably the best-paid journalist of the 1930s, Winston Churchill. Well, he wrote an article, an article about Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, in the 1930s. 
looking at Churchill from afar, or looking at Roosevelt from afar, Churchill said. Don't you just love this photograph? Again, it's colorized. This is biting down on that cigar. Uh, giving us that almost dirty look, right? Uh, uh, he's in a bad mood there. Don't you think? Well, any, anyway, this is what Churchill had to say about Roosevelt. This is before the Second World War. Again, when viewing the presidency of Franklin D. Roosevelt, it's certain, Churchill says, that Roosevelt will what? Rank among the greatest of American presidents. Again, this is in the mid-1930s that Churchill is writing this. Now, why is that? Well, here are the attributes that Churchill sees in Roosevelt. One great leader commenting on another great leader. What is it? Well, one, a generous sympathy for the underdog. Again, a desire, intense desire to promote social justice. I like this one, though. This is why I highlighted this. A leader who shows composure. This is an attribute of a leader that Churchill likes. Composure, and at the same time, though, combined with activity in a time of crisis. Composure plus activity, doing something, being seen to do something, but at the same time, being confident. Well, that will class Roosevelt among the famous men of action, Churchill says. Again, looking across the Atlantic, Churchill saw in Roosevelt a great leader who was bringing America out of the Depression. Churchill had already identified Roosevelt as someone he wanted to work with. When James Roosevelt went over to England, he had dinner with uh, uh, Winston Churchill. And um, uh, James Roosevelt, Roosevelt's son, asked him, what would you like most? And Churchill said, I would like to be prime minister. And I'd like to work with your father and collaborate. Because the United States and Britain working together, we can solve many of the world's problems. Again, already Churchill is looking to Roosevelt as someone that's going to be an important, important figure in the history of the 20th century. Well, let's look at the road to war. Well, Roosevelt became, was inaugurated as president in March of 1933. That same year, on January 30th, 1933, Hitler came to power, seized power in Germany. Uh, this, this photograph is so creepy. Look at those demonic eyes. There's something not quite right with a man who has a stare like that. I mean, here's a nationalist, extremist, uh, genocidal agenda. And look what he's done. He's grabbed this young boy. He has his arms on this young boy. This is right out of a grim fairy tale, right? You know, the Pied Piper stealing the children taking them away. And how old's this boy? Say about 12? What do you think? Am I right in that, about 12? Well, we know what's going to happen to that young boy. He's going to be killed over Britain or die at the Battle of Stalingrad. Blighted generation of German youth who are caught up in this war. Hitler's war. Well, again, this photograph to me just always as eerie and creepy. Well, Churchill described what was happening in Germany as a dictatorship has taken hold. Not just any dictatorship, but a most grim dictatorship. You can hear Shakespeare there, right? You know, from Hamlet, it's not only murder, but it's murder most foul. Well, Churchill is identifying early on that in Hitler's Germany, There's great danger of war coming to Europe. Roosevelt would agree with that. Well, in August of 1939, the Soviet Union, Stalin's Russia, and Hitler's Germany gets together. And in September of 1939, the war begins. Nazi Germany attacks Poland from one side. Soviet Union attacks Poland from the other. Poland is wiped off the face of the map, partitioned. Well... The next spring, in April of May, 1940, Hitler turns west. In April, invasion of Denmark, Norway, and then in May, an attack to the Netherlands, Belgium, and France. We know the result of these campaigns. The Germans are able to defeat France 
in a relatively short period of time of six to eight weeks of fighting, hard fighting, in May of 1940. Hitler here touring Paris, accompanied by Albert Speer, who would later become his minister of munitions. Well, this is the situation that Britain faced by the middle of June of 1940. Poland taken away. The Western democracies on the continent of Europe, Norway, Denmark, Netherlands, Belgium, France, now all under the Nazi yoke. Uh, At this time, Churchill, right as the uh, war, heavy fighting was beginning in France in the middle of May 1940, becomes prime minister. Um, We're fortunate that he did become prime minister at this time because in the wake of all of those defeats inflicted on the democracies of Western Europe, Britain might well have folded and tried to seek peace with Germany at this time. His main political rival, Lord Halifax, was certainly open to the idea of negotiations after the defeat of France. Uh, Churchill would have none of it. And, as you know, Britain, as he said, will never surrender, fighting on in the beaches and all that wonderful speeches. And here you see, again, right in the aftermath of Dunkirk, the last men off, despite this catastrophic military defeat suffered by British and French armies, Britain isn't going to surrender. They're going to fight on. I love this cartoon by the Australian uh, David Lowe. All behind you, Winston. Despite defeat, the British people are rallying behind Churchill's government. This is a wonderful cartoon. Jackets off. All the major political figures you see, Neville Chamberlain and Clement Attlee, and, you know, all the way back, a big phalanx. And, and this is, uh, what, a bare-knuckles fight, isn't it? No more key to Queensberry rules here. This is very American, rolling up your sleeves, taking your jacket off, going into the fight. Again, highlighting that determination of 1940. Well, our ambassador, the U.S. ambassador in Britain at this time, was Joseph Kennedy, the father of President John F. Kennedy. Well, Joseph Kennedy in England wrote to his son that the whole question of whether Britain could hold on depends upon the strength of the German Air Force. He wrote to his son, JFK, in August of 1940, that if the Germans have the strength in the air, well, and they come over and knock off the British Royal Air Force, well, it doesn't matter what defenses on the beaches Britain might have, Germany will be able to win the war. If Germany can get air superiority over the channel, over Britain, well, then Britain will lose. Joseph Kennedy, by the way, was very pessimistic about Britain's chances at this time. He thought that Britain was likely to lose. By the way, we were um, his signals back to the U.S. State Department cables were being intercepted and decrypted by the British So they were reading what Joseph Kennedy was sending back to President Roosevelt. And in fact, in December 1941, after we entered the war, Churchill told President Roosevelt, you might want to improve your ciphers. (laughs) If we were able to break them, maybe the Germans can. By the way, the Germans were reading a lot of cables uh, during the Second World War, uh, the U.S. and Britain. Well, anyway... Desperate situation, so desperate that, again, the American ambassador, Joseph Kennedy, he doesn't think Britain's going to be able to hold on. And indeed, Britain comes under fierce air attack, the Battle of Britain. The British fighters go up, the Spitfires go up to meet the bombers. Uh, Heavy losses are inflicted on both air forces, on the German and British air forces, during these uh, fights in August, September, October of 1940. While a lot of German aircraft are lost, the result, though, is that the bomber still does get through. While Germany's losing the Battle of Britain, it doesn't mean that the British cities and industries didn't come under heavy air attack. And here you see a a German two-engine bomber flying over the Thames, you know, Greenwich, and there's the loop of the Thames, the east end. Uh, In broad daylight, here you see an enemy bomber flying over your capital. 
and of course the heavy bombing that took place of London. St. Paul's Cathedral was thought would uh, collapse under the weight of heavy bombing. whole area around St. Paul's badly uh, damaged uh, at this time. Um, in the spring of 1941, the House of Commons is destroyed by German bombing. has to be rebuilt after the war. Uh, between August and December 1940, over that period of time, 25,000 British civilians, non-combatants, are killed by German terror bombing. Think about that for a moment. Think about that number. On September 11th, look at the losses that we had. This is the equivalent of seven September 11th attacks taking place on Britain. Britain is taking quite a beating during this time, but Britain stays in the war. Now, the 1940, what happens in 1940, these dramatic events, these disasters that are afflicting the democracies of Western Europe, uh, leads Roosevelt to do something that's unprecedented, to run for a third term. While it was not enshrined in the Constitution at that point, it was a tradition, of course, that two terms should be the term limit for American presidents. Because after all, George Washington, the father of our country, after two terms, retired. By standing for a third term, what kind of statement is that political leader saying? I'm better than George Washington. I deserve a third term. Well, uh, the American people in the first half of 1940, when they would be polled and asked, do you think that President Roosevelt should run for a third term? The polling was, no, no, the the Washington standard is right. There should be term limits. But under the impact of the Nazi victories in Europe, American opinion polls changed. It was thought by the American people, and was seen in poll after poll, that Roosevelt should run for a third term. He should be drafted to run for a third term. Uh, It was essential for national security that at this time of crisis that a tested leader like Roosevelt remain in office. And this poster from 1940 really does capture that. Again, we tend to think of Uncle Sam pointing out, saying, you know, I want you for the U.S. Army. Well, again, Roosevelt is being drafted by Uncle Sam to serve not as an infantryman or as a sailor, but as commander-in-chief. And this resonated with the American people at this time, so that Roosevelt took the step to run for a third term. Well, his opponent was Wendell Wilkie, a Democrat who had turned Republican, a very, very charismatic, popular figure, uh, gave it a very good race in 1940. But the result is that Roosevelt did win an overwhelming victory. And here's the Electoral College map that we're so accustomed to seeing uh, at our elections. And as you can see, Wilkie was strong in the farm belt there in the Midwest. But Roosevelt is solid across the country. A resounding victory in 1940. Now, again, think about this. At a time of great crisis in Europe... uh, the president has to run for office. And this this is a time where the American people are deeply conflicted about what the U.S. role should be. Many Americans agree with Joseph Kennedy that the United States should stay out of European affairs. The United States should defend itself in the Western Hemisphere. If the old world goes to Hades, that, well, we can't do anything about that. But we should defend the new world And so you have people who are big proponents of hemispheric defense, defending the Western Hemisphere against aggression, but don't want to send American forces overseas across the Atlantic or across the Pacific. Again, the isolationist impulse in the United States is very strong in the aftermath of the First World War because it was seen, after all, what? That Americans went and fought in the Great War. Then they came home. And what happened? The world is even worse situation than before. It's futile for the U.S. to be so actively engaged in the world. Instead, the United States should be more defensive in its orientation. Well, Roosevelt didn't agree with that. 
And he was actually quite courageous in 1940 to give as much aid as was possible to support Britain in this election year. He also proposed that the United States should help Britain with war supplies and material, what became known as Lend-Lease. And you see here uh, from very famous speech by Franklin D. Roosevelt that the United States must be what? The great arsenal of democracy. Now, again, this is also quite shrewd and canny from a political point of view. Notice he doesn't say that the United States should be the great foot soldiers of democracy. Instead, it is the United States should arm and send arms to fight to other countries who are fighting against the Nazis. Again, this is something that can resonate with the American people. We don't have to do the fighting. We should arm our coalition partners or those countries that are fighting against the Nazis. And again, for Roosevelt, rearming, giving support to Britain, well, it's an emergency as serious as war itself. Even though the U.S. isn't at war in the winter of 1940-41, the United States should look at the crisis as if it is at war. And one of the things that happens is you see American rearmament, not just the Navy, two-ocean Navy bill, but also a big buildup of American air power as well. And... Selective service draft being put in place in peacetime. The United States begins preparing after the fall of France, arming to the teeth, because it's understood by Roosevelt, the administration, how dangerous the world has come with the Nazi victories in Europe. Well, what's one of the consequences of this? Well, in the spring of 1941, Hitler's murder machine, as Churchill called it, invaded Yugoslavia and Greece in support of their Italian uh, allies, Mussolini. And this is what the picture looked like. Hitler has a choice. Should he continue the war, giving the main German effort against Britain, to try to defeat Britain before doing anything else? He comes to the conclusion, Hitler comes to the conclusion, that he's not going to be able to beat Britain. And one of the reasons why he comes to that conclusion is because of American assistance to Britain. He believes that if he continues to give an all-out effort on Germany's part against Britain, that it will only accelerate the American arms buildup and entry into the war against him. So America, even before we're in the war, is influencing the decisions of our enemy. Hitler has decided that attacking, continuing an all-out offensive against Britain in the Mediterranean and on the British homeland and at sea in the North Atlantic isn't going to be successful. Instead, Hitler, when faced by the choices that he has, decides to attack the Soviet Union. Now, we look at that because we know the history. We know what happens in the Soviet Union on the Eastern Front. It's in the Eastern Front that the German army is badly mauled, destroyed in heavy fighting with the Soviets. But we know the history. At the time, Hitler and his generals thought this was the easier thing to do, that defeating the Soviet Union was something that was feasible, whereas defeating Britain was something they didn't think they could accomplish. Again, looking back on it, we think, oh, what a stupid decision on the part of Hitler to open up this new front, to turn on his ally, Stalin. Uh, But again, America's role is already playing its part in narrowing down the choices, the strategic choices of our enemy in Hitler. Well, initially, the German invasion of the Soviet Union goes very well indeed. By early August, they've gone halfway to Moscow. And it's in this crisis situation in August of 1941 that Roosevelt and Churchill meet off the coast of Newfoundland. And church service, you can go to YouTube and and plug in uh, uh, the 1941 Atlantic uh, Conference. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt meeting here to discuss strategy, but also to discuss war aims. Why are Britain and the United States fighting? Well, it's enshrined in the Atlantic Charter, which comes out of the meeting between the British Prime Minister and the American president. And that's the whole Atlantic Charter. And by the way, it's not a secret document. It's publicized at the time. 
has eight elements, signed by the president, signed by the prime minister of August 1941. And one of the elements, number six, says, after the final destruction of the Nazi tyranny, let's keep our chronology straight here. This is several months before Pearl Harbor, several months before the United States is actively in the war. And yet, what are we calling for? Well, in our own parlance today, it's regime change. We're calling for the overthrow of the Nazi regime. We have stated our warring. We're not yet at war. But we have stated publicly that the goal is the destruction of the Nazi regime. And it goes on to talk about the type of peace that Roosevelt and Churchill would like to see, where nations dwell safely within their own borders, national self-determination. And here you see the language of the four freedoms, where people in all lands may live out their lives in freedom from fear and want, two of the four freedoms that Roosevelt talked about earlier in 1941. Again, on the international scene, the United States is projecting its domestic values, These freedoms need to be promoted outside of the United States for the United States to have the freedoms at home. Well, uh, what happens, though? You have to ask the American people. Okay, I've promulgated the Atlantic Charter. Now tell us, what what do you think, the American people? Well, this is what the polling data shows after, after the meeting of Roosevelt and Churchill. And here's one of the questions put to the American people. How would you vote today on the question of the United States entering the war now against Germany? Enter the war, 21%. Stay out of the war. This really shows the isolationist input, you know, at the time. No opinion, 5%. Now, which of these two things do you think is more important? That this country keep out of war or that Germany be defeated even at the risk of the U.S. getting into the war. Defeat Germany, almost 60%. Doesn't that seem to contradict what the first question was? Stay out? Again, just stay out regardless. No opinion, 5%. Now, what does this polling data show? Well, one thing is it shows that 5% of the American people are clueless. Uh, But it also shows something else, just how conflicted the American people are. They understand that Nazi Germany is dangerous. They want to see Nazi Germany defeated. But at the same time, they don't want to do it because they know full well that the cost of defeating Nazi Germany will be high in loss of life and treasure. Uh, Keeping these two contradictory things in mind, Germany needs to be defeated, but we don't want to do it. Uh, Unfortunately for the U.S., it's a choice. Nazi Germany requires, to defeat Nazi Germany requires the involvement of the U.S. in the war. I don't see how Nazi Germany would be defeated without the U.S. entry into the war. Well, at this time, too, in the fall of 1941, another momentous decision is taking place. This one behind the scenes. And that's the beginning of the nuclear weapons program. In Britain, in 1940 and 41, a committee of scientists and engineers had been set up, the so-called Maud Committee. And they issued a report about whether uranium can be used to develop uh, a weapon, a bomb. And what they concluded, the British scientists and engineers, was that, yes, it would be very expensive to do this. But when you consider the destructive effect, the power of nuclear weapons both material, damage, and moral, meaning morale in this sense of breaking morale, that every effort should be made to produce these weapons. Again, the backdrop is the fear that Nazi Germany is going to develop nuclear weapons. The first nuclear arms race was between the United States and Britain and Canada on one side and Nazi Germany on the other. Uh, What a horrible world we would be would have happened if Nazi Germany would have won that arms race. We don't want to contemplate that. Well, when can a bomb be ready? The British scientists and engineers thought maybe enough material could be made ready to have a bomb by the end of 1943, early 1944. 
Now, we know it's the summer of 45 before a weapon is ready. But nonetheless, this is the urgency that the British have. Now, they brief their American counterparts, American scientists and engineers, and uh, they in turn are going to brief Roosevelt about this. And this is the conclusion of the so-called Maud Report, that this weapon could be the decisive weapon for winning the war, that it had the highest priority, resources go to it, to develop these weapons in the shortest period of time, and that Britain should collaborate with the U.S. to make sure that these weapons are acquired first by Britain and the United States and not Nazi Germany. Well, Roosevelt is briefed on this, and he writes the next day after the briefing, he writes to Winston Churchill and says, hey, uh, this is in October of 1941, again, two months before Pearl Harbor. Uh, Britain and the U.S. should be uh, discussing, coordinating their efforts so that the United States, Britain, Canada working together to accelerate the prospect of getting these weapons. Churchill writes back, yes, Mr. President, uh, agree with you. You have the beginnings here, first of a research and development program, and then in January 1942, uh, an all-out effort to develop nuclear weapons. Because the fear is, the fear is that Germany might get these weapons first. And the other fear is, of course, that Germany might win in the Soviet Union. And all of Europe will continent will be dominated by Nazi Germany. How do you defeat Germany uh, if they beat the Soviet Union? So it's in this desperate period of the fall of 1941, as the German armies are closing in on Moscow and Leningrad, that these decisions are being made. Now, at the same time, there's a grave danger in the Pacific from Japan. This is from Fortune uh, magazine in the 1940s during the war. They did these wonderful, wonderful um, maps that, uh, to try to educate, again, the American people. And you can see in black the Japanese conquests uh, uh, during the, the war. Well, in the Pacific, the Japanese armies are on the march. There's Emperor Hirohito on his white horse, very militaristic emperor here, taking the salute of his soldiers. Invasion of China. 1937, Japanese soldiers start going down south of the Great Wall out of the Japanese puppet state in Manchuria, Manchuko, also invading along the coast. It's the beginning of a great war between Japan and China. Four years before Pearl Harbor, Japan and China are fighting each other in a major war. We Americans tend to forget that. We tend to think that, oh, the war in the Pacific began on December 7th, 1941. It didn't. There's a big war going on in Asia between Japan and China. And believe me, the peoples of Japan and China don't forget that history. They're very much aware of this brutal struggle that's taking place between these two Asian giants. Japanese armies in the march, very famous film footage and photograph of a crying baby abandoned in the Shanghai Railway Station. This is what the American people are seeing at this time, that the Japanese are aggressors against nationalist China of Chiang Kai-shek. Well, Roosevelt has a global perspective, and I love this photograph because it shows that big globe and Roosevelt looking at it. He understands how the Pacific relates to Europe. You can't look at these theaters in isolation. They all fit together. A good strategist understands how different pieces all come together. Well, his fear is that Japan will attack the Soviet Union. This is in 1941. Or attack Britain. Japan's actions in Asia can tilt the balance of power in Europe so that Nazi Germany can win. Roosevelt is afraid of this Japanese aggression, especially against the Soviet Union. And as a consequence, in the fall of 1941, uh, the United States starts to impose stricter sanctions on the Japanese so that the Japanese can't have the resources to undertake this type of offensive against the Soviet Union. At the same time, in June of 1940, the American battle fleet that had been in Hawaiian waters... Well, Roosevelt told the admirals, 
keep that fleet there in Hawaii. It was supposed to go back to the west coast of the United States. But he wanted to keep that battle fleet in Hawaii as a deterrent against Japanese actions. So if Japan is going to go north or south, there's an American battle fleet there to help deter the Japanese. Well, we know that all of these actions lead to war on December 7th, 1941. Before the war, planners in Japan and the U.S. planned out what a war would look like between Japan and the United States. And this is typically what it looked like. That Japan would begin the war by attacking south toward the rich resource areas of Southeast Asia, seizing the Philippines and Guam. They would then assert their control over the Western Pacific. The U.S. fleet operating out of Hawaii would break through in the Marianas and roll back the Japanese conquest from the early stage of the war. This is how war planners gamed out, gamed out what a future war in the Pacific would look like. And by the way, the war does look like that. Um, pretty much. The big battle in the Marianas in June of 1944, where we break the Japanese defensive barrier. But today we like to say the enemy gets a vote. And of course we know that the war began with a Japanese strike not only to Southeast Asia, to the Philippines, to Malay and Singapore, but also a strike on that American battleship fleet in Pearl Harbor. Here is the cover of the Army-Navy game of 1941 at the end of November. Um, 50 cents. That's a lot of money back then. Um, And for me, it's a lot of money now, too. Uh, But uh, look at this wonderful cover, you know, showing the midshipmen, Corps cadets, standing tall, proud, flags unfurled, marching forward. And in that program... There's a photograph of the battleship Arizona. Again, remember, Franklin D. Roosevelt had been at the keel laying of the Arizona at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And the caption underneath this photograph of the Arizona says, the Arizona plows into a huge swell. And it's significant that despite the claims of air enthusiasts, no battleship has yet been sunk by bombs. 29 November 1941. This is another creepy photograph. This is tempting the fates. We know full well what happens to the Arizona. Of course, it is sunk by a bomb that explodes the magazine of the Arizona, destroying the ship and killing over a 1,000. And while that Army-Navy football game is taking place, a Japanese carrier force is closing in on the Hawaiian Islands, steaming toward Pearl Harbor, launching its strike on Battleship Row there, the bomb that explodes the magazine of the Arizona, destroying it. There's the wreck of the Arizona. And, of course, today, well... This is the New York Times headline the next day. Japan wars on the U.S. and Britain. President Roosevelt on December 8th going to a joint session of Congress asking for declaration of war. This is the first page of the speech that was prepared for Roosevelt. Uh, And as you can see, he edits it, what's given to him. But I want to highlight the first sentence. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in world history. Do you like that? No. You can see Roosevelt, given what he's been given by his speechwriters, he's imposing, imposing his thoughts on this. He takes the comma out, puts in the dash, you know, the pause. This is important. A date which will live in infamy. Again, that's how we remember these events. Not only is it a great date to remember in world history, it's a date which will live in infamy. Infamy. Again, Roosevelt owning that speech, internalizing it, putting his language on it. Well, how to win the war now that the U.S. is in the war? Well, first you have to have a team of leaders to work around you. And Roosevelt is very fortunate that he has a group of military leaders, General George Marshall, chief of staff of the army, great organizer of victory, organizing the American army military effort to fight the war. Admiral Ernest King, chief of naval operations during the war. Again, a great naval leader in charge of the Navy at this time, top uniform leader of the Navy. Um, 
also Admiral uh, William Leahy. Leahy is often forgotten. He, he was the equivalent of our chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he was also chief of staff to the president. He's an incredibly important individual. And yet we, we remember sort of Marshall, General Marshall, right? Uh, name recognition there. Uh, if you're Navy, you probably remember uh, Admiral King. But Admiral Leahy, who's probably more important than either one of those two, we, we tend to forget how important he is. Roosevelt trusted him, had the greatest confidence in him. And Leahy is one of these leaders that brings together conflicting points of view, provides different courses of action, and advises the president about what he thinks is the best course of action to execute. Well, in the Atlantic theater, in the war against, in Europe against uh, Germany, your field commander out there fighting the Germans, well, and it's going to end up being, of course, Dwight D. Eisenhower. This is a great photograph of him looking on, on a Roosevelt. Again, here's another leader learning from a leader. Eisenhower, of course, going on to be president of the United States. Meanwhile, in the Pacific, the commanders that Roosevelt has there are General Douglas MacArthur of the Army and Chester Nimitz of the Navy. In the Pacific theater, we had two main thrusts against Japan. And Roosevelt uh, is able to get along uh, with MacArthur and with Nimitz. This is a photograph from the summer of 1944. MacArthur, in this meeting with Roosevelt, argues strenuously that the U.S. should go back to the Philippines. Remember, MacArthur said, I shall return when he left the Philippines in 1942. Well, here he convinces Roosevelt that the United States should honor MacArthur's pledge and land in the Philippines in 1944, in October of 44. Again, Roosevelt and MacArthur were despite their differences in so many ways, are on the same wavelength. Roosevelt is able, able to understand these great military leaders, Nimitz, MacArthur, Leahy, King, Eisenhower, uh, get them all to work together as a team. But Roosevelt is also forging an alliance with other players. And here you see the Casablanca Conference of January 1943, Roosevelt with Churchill and all the military chiefs, British and American together, that a coalition coalition requires that leaders from different countries coordinate their efforts. And, of course, this great leadership duo here of Churchill and Roosevelt, how important they were in the Second World War. But there's a third big leader, of course, Stalin. Stalin had initially worked with Hitler. But when Hitler turned on him, he's now part of the Grand Alliance, part of the alliance to defeat Germany. For Stalin, he's in a desperate situation from 41 to 43. He thinks he's going to lose. And so he's constantly calling and berating Roosevelt and Churchill and saying, you must undertake an offensive across the channel with ground forces as soon as possible. It's the only way the Soviet Union can survive. But neither Roosevelt nor Churchill thought that the U.S. and the British were prepared for an early cross-channel attack, despite what Stalin's pleas were. Uh, In retrospect, their decisions were right. Eventually, the big three get together for a summit at Tehran, modern-day Iran, at the end of November, early December 1943. This is the first time that the three get together. It's probably the most important summit meeting of the Second World War from the Allied side. It's at this point that they make a firm decision that six months down the road, in May or June of 1944, that cross-channel attack will take place, that Stalin wants. Roosevelt sides with Stalin, overrules Churchill, who still has doubts about the feasibility of that cross-channel attack. Well, the liberation of Europe. There's Eisenhower leading a team of British and Americans across the channel, D-Day, June 6, 1944, a famous photograph here of GIs going ashore on Omaha Beach. What a grisly fight that was. Close-run thing. Germans almost stopped us on Omaha Beach. The American soldiers, though, even though leadership had broken down, American soldiers, sailors, airmen, became a real soldier's battle, nonetheless clawed their way forward against uh, heavy German resistance. And, of course, the liberation of Paris after the breakout from the Normandy beachhead. 
Now, on the Eastern Front, the Soviets are also driving back the Germans through 43 and 44. Soviet tanks having air superiority and driving forward on American trucks. The Soviet army, when it goes in to Berlin and Vienna, drives into Berlin and Vienna on Dodges and Studebakers and Jeeps. Remember Studebakers? Wonderful cars. Well, uh, uh, the, this is part of Lend-Lease. American assistance to the Soviet Union helps improve Soviet combat capabilities. In February of 1945 at Yalta in the Crimea, Roosevelt has traveled halfway around the world. You can see he's not looking well at all there to meet again with Stalin and Churchill to try to establish a lasting peace after this horrendous war and also to get Stalin's participation in the war against Japan. Up to this point, Japan and the Soviet Union are not at war with each other. Stalin agrees. Well, New York Times headlines about it. The big three doom the Nazis. Agreement on liberated Europe. Well, at this time, at the time of the Yalta Conference, Hitler tells Martin Bormann, he says it's an accident, a, a big historical accident that faded that when he came to power was also at the time when who else came to power? Roosevelt. Hitler hates Roosevelt. He sees Roosevelt as being his prime enemy because the United States is the ultimate prime enemy of Nazi Germany. And of course, in Hitler's worldview, it's all because of some vast international Jewish conspiracy. And Roosevelt is being manipulated by that big conspiracy. Well, Roosevelt is that determined enemy of Hitler. And at the end, Hitler sees Roosevelt as the one that has done him in. Well, racing to victory. This is what the battlefronts look like at the time of Yalta in February 45. The Germans are fighting uh, right outside of Berlin. The Red Army is only about 50 miles away. You can see where the American, Canadian, British forces, French forces are still just clawing their way up to the Rhine. It's often said, we should have gotten to Berlin first. Well, it's very hard to do, given how close uh, Berlin is to the front lines in February of 45, how much further we and the British and Canadians would have to go, how much closer the Soviets are to Vienna than we are. In any sort of horse race to take Vienna or Berlin, it's going to be hard to beat the Soviets to those objectives. Um, At the same time, those uh, young boys that we saw in that earlier photograph, well, down to the end, they're still fighting. This is one of the last photographs of Hitler awarding uh, medals, iron crosses, to young boys who were fighting against the Soviets. Um, again, you can YouTube and see these photographs. Um, down to the end, the German resistance is fanatical. The Red Army, the Soviet Army, to take Berlin in the last month of the war suffers 30,000 dead to take Berlin. The war is lost. The war is lost. And yet, this regime is fighting down to the end in a fanatical way and still able to generate enough resistance to inflict such heavy losses on the Allied forces. Not just the Soviets, but also on the Western Front, by the way, on the Canadian, British, and uh, French and American forces, too. Well, the Soviets uh, storm the Reichstag, plant their flag over it, the victory in Europe comes. Roosevelt was not to see that victory, though. He was to die before the final defeat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And here you see the headlines. The ninth is the ninth division is getting up to the Elbe River, uh, and it's nearing Berlin, just as the Soviets are all much closer to Berlin. And, of course, Roosevelt picked as his vice president for the 44 election, Harry Truman. It's Harry Truman who's going to see through the war and also the construction of that post-war world. Well, what is the legacy of Franklin D. Roosevelt for us today? Well, as I stated at the beginning, how important it is for the United States to be engaged in the world. We can't think that we can retreat. 
It's so important for the United States to work with other countries because if we don't, we could have a repeat of the 30s, which is that partners of ours are taken down one by one by aggressor regimes. It's important that the U.S. work, work with coalition partners. That's the best way to preserve the peace, to deter, to prevent aggressors be they non-state actors or state actors, from moving against, moving against the international order that the United States has led since the end of the Second World War. It was President Roosevelt who was trying to educate the American people that the United States has to have that rendezvous with destiny. It has to show leadership in the world if we're going to have a more peaceful world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.